Hello and welcome to A Sporting Discussion, your podcast that discusses sports of all sorts. I am Andrew Donison, and for a very special edition of the podcast, I'm joined by an increasingly edgy AJ Mithen. Hello, AJ. Andrew, hello. Your two preferred sporting teams are doing well. Oh, it's the first time since 1995 that the... Geelong Cats and Canberra Raiders have been a top four shot, so getting we're approaching finals for once. We can't wait for this week's episode, AJ. We are very proud to be able to bring our listeners a Sporting Discussion's first long-form interview. We were lucky enough to be able to talk with Craig Norenberg, Senior Producer of Sport at Al Jazeera English. Now, that name will be familiar to, to the majority of people out there. Craig has been in the caper for many, many years, and we, we had a fascinating discussion about his three-decade-long career, as well as the changing landscape of the sporting media. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. I'm really, really, really proud of that. So I hope you all enjoy it and get a lot out of it. Stay tuned also for week two of our special Olympic Lovin', Olympic Hatin' segment. This week is going to bring back some memories and also may change your perception of a fabled Aussie incident. Ooh, mysterious. Mm-hmm. As we always say here at a sporting discussion, a discussion is two ways, us here at ASD Stadium and you, the listeners. Make sure you get in contact with us via Twitter at ASD underscore podcast or facebook.com slash a sporting discussion so we can make sure we are talking about issues that are of interest to you. kick things off as usual with confirmations and corrections from the research division. AJ, can I play our banging tune? I'm sorry, there'll be no banging tune this week. Damn Andrew. it. Last week uh, during the Olympic Love and Olympic Hayton segment, I was talking about Roy Jones Jr. and I stumbled over my show notes and got all confused about his weight divisions and championships and all that. So Clarify it for us, I'm AJ. just going to clarify it for the listeners. Uh Roy Jones Jr. won numerous world titles in middleweight, super middleweight, light heavyweight and heavyweight divisions. So he went from the bottom to the top. Wow. Like I said last week. He's the only boxer in history to start his professional career as a light middleweight and go on to win a heavyweight title. Impressive. Now, just to give his career some context, because he's going around fighting at the moment and he's, it's, not, it's not good. We won't lie. Uh, in his first 50 pro fights, he was 49 and 1 with 35 knockouts. Good. The one loss was in the last round against Montel Griffin where he was disqualified for throwing two extra punches when Griffin was on his knees. Okay. Jones Jr. had already punched him to the ground and then apparently he continued the assault while the ref was starting to get involved and so he was subsequently disqualified. Sure. They had a rematch. Jones won the rematch in 151 seconds (laughs) in the first round by KO. So he is one of the greatest fighters of all time. He's one of my favourite fighters of all time and I needed to clarify that because I stumbled over everything last week and that is it. That's all the clarifications and corrections this week. All right, we will also quickly go over our topical recap proudly brought to you by Ultimate AFL Trivia. Check them out on Facebook. Trivia questions every day for you AFL fans out there and they can also come and do a trivia night, an AFL-themed trivia night at your sporting club. Anywhere in Australia and they're heading to Melbourne. They are heading to Adelaide on September the 14th and Melbourne on September the 15th. So get along to facebook.com, search for Ultimate AFL Trivia. AJ, what was our topical recap well, it was a bit of a fun one this week, uh, mm. and it wouldn't have meant much to you, uh, <laughs> seeing as you don't drive a car or hold a license of any sort, <laughs> heavy, you know, farm machinery. So what was the poll? <laughs> uh, we put the question out there, uh, having a team sticker on your car is A, the act of a true fan, B, the act of a flog, <laughs> or C, who cares? It took a lot for us to put the word <laughs> flog in there. I don't like it, but... It was there for humour. Exactly. Right, now, here's where it is at the moment. The act of a true fan is way out ahead on 44%. Okay. Which I thought, that surprised me, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, who cares coming second? Yeah. So this is not a high order issue. No, I this wouldn't is, have thought it's, so. It's census week, so people are worried about other things. <laughs> and the act of a flog came in at 22%, and I think, fair enough, if that's, if that's what people... That's what they said, so that's what they said. It is. Okay. Now, we want to put the call out because 
I got a feeling that uh, people with team stickers on their cars, we live in Melbourne and I see a, an awful lot of Hawthorne stickers. So if you come across a car with, let's say, more than two team stickers on the back, could be one team, could be more than one team, mm-hmm. get a photo, no number plates. Please. And tweet it to us at ASD underscore podcast. Uh, we'll call this some unofficial field research just to uh, so we can make an unofficial ladder of the teams that uh, have the most stickers on display. Andrew, it is time to wrap the week and because this is a very, very special episode with a long-form interview, we need to do this very, very quickly. So I'm going to toss it to you first for some good news stories from a major sporting event happening in South America. Yes, there is a major sporting event happening in South America. which saw Kosovo win their first ever medal at those games. Uh, judo star Melinda Kalmendi was in the judo, the 52-kilogram final. She beat Italy's Odette Giafrida. In 2008, Kosovo declared its independence from, from Serbia and has basically sort of been in a scrap for its own recognition. And they've been working with the IOC to become their own nation and they've actually only been recognised by the IOC for less than two years. Now, Kalmendi did fight for Albania at the 2012 London Games, but this is the first time that she has been able to represent her home country, Kosovo, and to win a gold medal and their first ever medal is a really, really good story. Another good story that's come out of the Games is... Yusra Mardini from the refugee team. She's a Syrian 18-year-old and she was in the 100-metre butterfly heat. There was only five swimmers in her heat. She did finish. She did win her heat. Unfortunately, she finished 41st overall, so didn't qualify. But last year, she was fleeing Syria and basically she was in a, a dinghy full of refugees heading across the Aegean Sea. Less than an hour into the journey, the motor failed. So Mardini, her sister, and another woman, the only three who could swim, they jumped into the water, dragged the boat and all of the inhabitants to safety. They took turns kicking and pulling the boat for three and a half hours before they reached safety. That's amazing. Uh, Yes. So good on her. That's a bit more than amazing. That's all I can think of right now, yeah. And she said she's really excited for the 100 metre freestyle and I hope I'm going to swim better. So we're looking forward to seen that. The final one for me is Aussie Catherine Skinner. She won gold in the trap shooting, which is like clay target shooting. She beat Natalie Rooney from New Zealand. After the medal ceremony where she received her gold medal, she gave her gold medal to her mum to wear, which I thought was a nice touch. And then her mum said that she was expecting free beers to be flowing at pubs back home in Mansfield. And her father, Ken, he stayed at home because... He had to look after the farm, and besides, it all looks a little bit too exciting for me. <laughs> so that's my good news stories from the week. AJ, what about you? Well, mine's not such a good news uh, story. We had another round of AFL, which was just full of beatdowns and floggings. Mm-hmm. Uh, just three to speak of was the Swans beating Port Adelaide Power by 67 points, Geelong beat Essendon by 66, and uh, copped some rubbish for not winning by enough. <laughs> and uh, Adelaide Crows destroyed the Brisbane Lions by 138 points. Now that's getting to be a theme over the last few weeks in the AFL and it'll definitely be a theme towards the end of the AFL season and there's going to be a week off before the finals and there's a real chance that all of these top teams just murdering the lesser teams uh, could take a bit of shine off things. You know, usually you build some excitement going to the finals but this could uh, this could have an effect on it. Especially when it, this season's been touted as, you know, the best season ever. And yeah. Well, look, we might do a bit more work on that and um, come back next week and have a look uh, yep. at some facts and figures and myths. But anyway, what have you got for us? Ozzy got flogged in the cricket again. Oh, Australian cricket team, they can't play spin, they can't build an innings. I don't want to go over it again. AJ, talk about something else. There's a third test coming on Saturday, I think it starts. Um, it does. Uh, all right, so we'll revisit cricket next week because we've got a, we've got a lot to do here. Uh, and I will wrap up wrapping the week up by talking about the Hurricanes defeating the Lions 20-3 to in the Super Rugby final in Wellington. Mm. Uh, it was absolutely bucketing down rain, uh, but it was a high-standard game, really high pressure 
uh, you know, well, everything was on the line. And these are two teams that can give and take pressure really, really well. Um, it was 1v2 on the ladder, on the extended ladder. Yeah. 1v1 if you break it into conferences. And it could very easily have been played in South Africa if the Lions hadn't have sent a, a quarter-strength team to play the Jaguars in their uh, last game. Los Jaguars, yes. Well, looking back on that, that's, that, was, that is full of regret, you'd imagine. Uh, yes, a foolish decision. Well, they made the final, played some good rugby on the way to the final, but then they came up against the Wellington Hurricanes and their fly-half Bowden Barrett, who was best on ground, uh, and the much-vaunted Hurricanes defence, who haven't conceded a try throughout the finals this year. And going into the first game next year, they won't have conceded a try for over five hours of game time. That's a long time. They're, they're pretty good. Black and yellow wall, they're really, really good. So that's, that was it for the Super Rugby season. Uh, we, see, we wait to see what happens next year. AJ, Olympic loving, Olympic hating. We are going to look at... Uh, it's a joint approach to this one. Yep. I love an event and you hate... Not necessarily the event, but something about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to my bit. But we're going to be talking... We're talking about the Sydney 2000 4 by 100 men's freestyle in the pool. Andrew, we rock off again? Yes, we will. To see who goes first. One, two, three. Pay-pay. Woo! I win. Andrew wins, all right. Olympic Lovin goes first. Let's have it. Sydney is known for two things in the Olympics. All right, Kathy Freeman's win in the 400 metres and then this men's 4 by 100 metre freestyle relay final. The USA were favourites for the race and, and with very good reason. They'd won every single men's 4 by 100 freestyle at the Olympics since it was introduced as an event in 1964. <laughs> there were two Olympics where it wasn't... Uh, uh, where, the, where the event didn't happen, but the seven times that it had, the US had won, and the current team or that team were the world record holders. In both the Australian and the US uh, qualifying tournaments, the four Australians notched times of between 48 and 49 and a half seconds. The US notched 48 and a half to 49 and a half seconds, so they were very, very evenly matched, each of the eight competitors. In the lead-up to the race, Gary Hall Jr. was quoted in the Aussie press as saying that the USA would smash Australia like guitars. And that set the tone for the rivalry and created, I guess, a real villain that Australia could barrack against. The USA team, Jason Lazak, Anthony Irvin, Neil Walker and Gary Hall Jr. came up against the Australians of Michael Klim, Chris Feidler, Ashley Callis and Ian Thorpe. It was Ian Thorpe's debut Olympic Games and he actually had to... Uh, compete in the 400 metre freestyle final on that night and he did that and he won it in world record time the race itself was absolutely phenomenal Michael Klim established a half body length lead within the first 15 seconds he swam the first 50 in under 23 seconds he ended up breaking the 100 metre world record as he finished the first leg in 48.18 seconds Feidler, he was eventually caught by Walker before he responded and he hit the wall first, 1.77 seconds under the world record. Lazak, the American, got ahead of Callis, but then Callis fought back and he retook the lead. Thorpe jumped in the water just ahead of Gary Hall Jr. in his very first Olympics, the, coming up against the, this experienced sprint swimming expert who had already had the relay gold from Atlanta – Hall, again, took the early lead for the Americans, turned for the final final 50 metres in front. With 20 metres to go, Thorpe started to close in. With 15 metres to go, they were level. Thorpe touched the wall 0.19 seconds ahead of Gary Hall Jr. in arguably the greatest team swim ever seen at an Olympic Games as the Australians set a new world record time. And then came the celebration in response to the smash them like guitars comment where Michael Klim led his teammates in a bit of air guitar. And that race is such an Olympic loving moment for me. AJ? Look, I thought it was a great was really, yeah, There's no taking away from the spectacle of it in the water. And yep. it was, you know, Australia won, which makes it even better, won in a world record time. It's the America's Cup of the pool, let's call it. But... There's something that's been bugging me about it for, well, since the year 2000, really. Um, I want to read something to listeners. This is, this is the entire quote of what Gary Hall Jr. said, the smash em like guitars quote. Uh, now, it's likely that this is the first time that a lot of you will have heard this. So, listen closely. Here we go. 
I like Australia in truth. I like Australians. The country's beautiful and the people are admirable. Good humour and genuine kindness seem a predominant characteristic. My biased opinion says that we will smash them like guitars. Historically, the US has always risen to the occasion. But the logic in that remote area of my brain says it won't be so easy for the United States to dominate the waters this time. Whatever the results, the world will witness great swimming. What a bastard. <laughs> that- what an unsporting bastard. I've never heard the quote in full before. That is the quote in full. It's a surprise, isn't it? It is. Uh, So the whole thing was a willful misinterpretation of what Gary Hall Jr. actually wrote. And it was front page news for quite a few days around and, you know, whipping up all the patriotic fever. But if that's the first time you've ever heard it, I hope that puts a little bit of context to... uh, to this event. Especially because Michael Klim leading the, the air guitar band is still used in basically every Australian Olympic montage. Yeah. Well, anyway, just one other interesting point. Mm. Uh, Thorpe hit the water ahead of Gary Hall Jr., but uh, Gary Hall Jr. actually swam the final leg faster than Thorpe did by six one hundredths of a second. And the only swimmer in the Australian team to swim faster than their American opponent was Michael Klim, who blasted Irvin out of the water and set the world record that the rest of the team couldn't, the rest of the US team couldn't make up. So thank you, thank you, Michael Klim. Yes. <laughs> uh, still to this day, Gary Hall Jr.'s words are being misrepresented, even in the coverage of the major sporting event in the South American country we are seeing right now. Uh, people are still referring to Gary Hall Jr. talking about smashing, smashing things like guitars. But I'll wrap it up with another quick quote from Gary Hall Jr. I don't even know how to play the guitar. I consider it the best relay race I've ever been a part of. I doffed my cap to, the, cap to the great Ian Thorpe. He swam better than I did. What a bastard. Just to clarify, that was AJ uh, <laughs> amusingly saying, what a bastard, uh, rather than that being part of Gary Hall Jr.'s quote. <laughs> AJ, we spoke to an absolute legend of Australian sports media recently, didn't we? We did. I was, in, I was really, really nervous. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing for both of us. <laughs> Our guest for the week is Craig Norenberg's. Um, he has one of the most impressive resumes in Australian sports media, Australian sports coverage, Australian news production. Um, let me just go from the start. Uh, he started off at Channel 10 in Canberra. He's worked in Channel 9, at Channel 9. He's worked at SBS. He's worked at B, Sky B in London. He's been head of sport for Sky News Australia. He's been the ABC Radio's manager of sport. He's been the general manager of broadcasting for, New Ze- for the New Zealand Racing Board. Uh, he's now working in Doha as the senior producer in sport at Al Jazeera English. Now, they're based in Qatar, mm. uh, but we were lucky enough to get him uh, on the phone from New Zealand a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we recorded – well, we tried to keep him on the phone for as long as we could because we just wanted to pick his brains about all the knowledge he has over over 30 years' experience working in sports media in Australia and overseas. Um, we hope you enjoy it. Uh, Here it is, Craig Norenbergs, a true legend of Australian sports media. We are talking to one of the all-time greats of Australian sports journalism. Absolute all-time greats. You've you've, you've piqued my interest. (laughs) Keep going. All right, no no more stalling. We are talking to Craig Norenbergs. Uh, Craig, how are you? I'm good. I thought you were going to introduce someone else by giving me such an introduction. So, um, <laughs> no. Well, look. Let's. Uh, you are currently senior producer in sport at Al Jazeera English. Uh, which yes. you've, you've been there for what six months or so? Yeah, I've been there. It's, I've, I've, yeah, I've been only there a few months. It's um, it's funny how they work. It by you do three months stints, then you get a couple of weeks off. You do another three months, and so it's kind of like. And maybe I shouldn't use this word. It's a bit like, you know, if you're in the Army or the Air Force or something, they fly you in, fly you out, um, that kind of thing. So it's an interesting setup. Very multicultural newsroom. Probably outside of SBS when I worked there, which was a very multicultural newsroom, this is probably the most multicultural. And given that, uh, that Al Jazeera Arabic is right next door, it, it's definitely the most multicultural newsroom I've ever worked in. Yeah. How, ma- how many um, staff do you have there? 
Oh, hundreds. And if you take into account that they have uh, correspondents all over the world, it's interesting because in the morning, so generally the way it works in sport, you do a, you do a day shift or night shift. You do the day shift and you're, you get in early and, and set the agenda and, and put your line-up in. When they have at 9 o'clock an editorial meeting and the whole newsroom is there, there can be literally 100 people. Who, who might be listening into an editorial meeting. So it's a huge newsroom. Um, it's, a, it's an international newsroom. It is state-of-the-art, the way that they broadcast their news. Um, and it, it's been going for about uh, 10, 15 years. It's certainly well-respected around the world. It gets 40, 50 million viewers um, a bulletin, so it's watched by a lot of people, particularly in the Middle East and Africa. So it has a, a very important role to play in world news, and I'd have to say it's, it's a great challenge for me, but it's, um, it's somewhere where I've always wanted to work, and so I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, the, speaking of the, the numbers over there, it's, you know, twice the population of Australia listening in, which is pretty pretty impressive. Um the I guess one thing that we sort of notice in the uh, Australian media is that the Australian news desks can tend to, to pay little regard to, to overseas sports outside of, I guess, the USA and the UK. How different is it over there with Al Jazeera? Is there much more of an international focus or is it still that domestic focus that's the, the main issue? Obviously, they take an international view. It's funny that you mentioned that, that Australian newsrooms uh, don't really take an international um, view. We would joke, when I worked at SBS, we used to joke because Channel 9 or Channel 7 would always start, if they did a football, um, as in soccer story, they would start it with, there's been more violence at the soccer this time, and then they'd just basically write their basic. And that's the only time that the round ball game would it be seen on news bulletins. It's changed a lot since then. And I can remember when I was at SBS, the late great Johnny Warren saying, and this was in the Nathan days of paid television and um, the podcasts and you know, even before um, the internet had taken off. And he said, when this technology takes off, uh, football taking off in Australia will be a no-brainer. And I think Johnny Warren was right, because once Australians saw how big the world game was, they said, that's what we want to do. Uh, but getting back to your question, at Al Jazeera, uh, very much an international view um, of the world. Football's very big there, tennis, uh, golf, and obviously, um, you know, the big events, World Cups, Olympics. And we do have to keep in mind that we are going out to a world audience. Uh, and one of the things that I thought while I've been there, because a lot of the things we get off the news-wise, uh, all the news um, agencies, is if the NRL or the AFL or um, even the A-League or, or the, Australia, uh, the ACB, Cricket Australia, yeah. was smart, they would do a deal with this big agency, such as I would imagine CNN or, or Al Jazeera, to take their highlights. Because if the highlights are available, we'll generally run it. But unfortunately, due to, they'll take the short-term view, which is to do a big rights deal with, with your, um, your Channel 9s or your Channel 7s or Fox, which will then prohibit big news agencies as such as you know, Al Jazeera the big broadcast at CNN from running them. Actually, one of the classic stories is, um, I'm not, I don't even, I think it might be an urban myth, but uh, the story goes that when um, ESPN in America used to carry Australian rules football, I think when it was the BFL, and I know Americans still remember Aussie rules from the days it was on ESPN. The story goes that when the contract came up and the AFL used to give it to ESPN for free, when the contract came up, the, the AFL and BFL was at the time, they wanted an obscene amount of money from ESPN and they said, you know what, we actually don't have to take this and we don't want to pay you for it. The VFL put their foot down and tried to call their bluff, so ESPN picked up ice hockey and then the um, NHL took off. So oh, it's wow. one of the great missed opportunities was that that is how the AFL lost its contract with ESPN. It's amazing because any... Australian uh, sporting code would they know they'd, they'd do anything to to get the brand out on a worldwide stage these days. So that sort of media management uh, and contract management would just it wouldn't you know, they wouldn't even dream of doing that. that they'd sort of they'd sit down and go, <laughs> yes, we will do anything to get our content. Brink, brinkmanship with ESPN that's that's always going to go well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah. 
somebody would bring that. And, and uh, to, to tell another Johnny Warren story that he always told um, about the number of times there were, um, like, um, Australian footballers that, that had been born in Australia, but then they'd gone and played in Europe and ended up playing for other countries. The reason a lot of that happened was because um, back in the day when it was Soccer Australia before it became the FFA, people, you know, the um, officials would travel to Europe, they'd be having lunch over a bottle of wine, and someone would say, and Johnny Warren said he, he did this, and would say, oh, look, there's an Australian playing, or somebody who's eligible playing in the Serie B in, in Italy. Let's go check, check him out. And they'd go, nah, let's order another bottle of wine. And they would just <laughs> do that. And then the guy would end up playing for Italy or would end up playing for England. Or, you know, so that the, Johnny used to say that used to happen so many times. So it's not only sporting organisations, but it's actually down at the uh, snouts in the trough officials. Things might have changed a bit these days. That obviously take a much more world view. But certainly the AFL story is a legendary one. And as Johnny used to say, you know, a lot of short-sighted officials might have stopped Ozzy's walking bigger than it is. <laughs> um, now you've just told us your production meetings in the morning can have over a hundred people. I imagine that's slightly different to how it was uh, in New Zealand and back here in Australia. Uh, what are the other big differences outside of the resourcing? I guess that you've found in how uh, how it's done over there. No, they're pretty similar. And it's funny. I joke with um, some of the Aussies in newsroom. The characters are the same that you bump into in, in newsrooms all over the world and wherever you travel. Uh, you've got the hard-nosed producers and you've got, um, you know, presenters have their own little foibles and there's good guys and bad guys and people you've got to work around. And, and pretty much newsrooms around the world are exactly the same. And, I, and I've worked in newsrooms in Australia, England, in New Zealand and, you know, now in the Middle East. And, and I've observed newsrooms in... I, I went and did a week of kind of work experience in Memphis in the newsroom and, uh, and watched the way that they did it. Um, and it was exactly the same as you could see in Australia. The main difference with Al Jazeera is, which is the exciting bit, is that if, for example, if there's a, uh, a football story and we want to line up um, uh, to do an interview, a live interview with someone, we could do a live interview with someone in Kenya or in Nairobi or in the Middle East or even in you know, Chicago or even in Sydney um, because it's just the, the worldwide influence um, that they have. And most of the... The, the budget lines in Australia and New Zealand run very tightly, so that's probably the main the main difference. In Australia, they'd go, mm, can we do it over the telephone rather than doing an actual, you know, uh, live cross to cross to someone. But newsrooms all over, over the world are the same. The people's passion, whether it be Al Jazeera um, at SBS at Channel 9 or even, you know, channel, regional Channel 10 station anywhere in Australia or New Zealand are, are all the same. Journalists gen- generally... The journalists and the producers that I've always worked with have in mind get, getting out, banging out the, the best uh, sports story. And I have to say to Al Jazeera, they're exceptionally professional. Um, I am working at capacity every day, which I love. It's a real challenge and, and it's, um, it's an ideal workplace because everyone is working towards putting out the best product. And I, but I've found that you know, everywhere I've worked. The, the people who don't work hard in media, and this is for people who are interested in working in media, if you're not prepared to work hard and you're not prepared to, you know, really put in your uh, nose to the, to the grindstone, then you'll be found out pretty quickly. So I have to say Al Jazeera is amongst the most professional place I've ever worked. Touching on a, a few things that, you, that, that you've spoken about there and, and looking into, I guess, something that's happened a lot over the, the last few years is the ease of access to information that, that people have got both, I guess, in the general public, but then in the in the newsrooms, being able to to, to to be able to find what's happening in other other states, other countries, basically you know the other side of the world. Do, do you think that that ease of access to the information has changed the type of stories that are covered, and possibly even how deep into stories the the uh, the news services will go? Yeah, in some ways. There is in newsrooms, like when I started in newsrooms, which were in the early 90s, it was still the era of typewriters, uh, crusty journos, smoking in the newsroom. We would go for lunch at the Working Man's Club in Canberra and have jugs of beer and schnitzels and roll back to the newsroom. 
Uh, and, and on weekends, and I can remember it, whenever you know, we were doing footy or cricket, you would ring the scoreboard attendant at whatever ground the game was being played and you'd build up a rapport with Marge who ran the scoreboard at the <laughs> MCG and say, hi Marge, how you going? I'm good, yeah, how's your, how's your nephew? So you'd have a bit of a chat and say, now what's the score? And so you'd have to update the score that way. Now, of course, it's much easier. You just jump on a, on a website and if I'm at Al Jazeera, for example, when the and Wimbledon and the French Open were recently on. We could update the score while I was sitting in the gallery about to put the sports news live to air. You could get in real time if you go to the Wimbledon website. It's fantastic. They'll update it as each point is being played. So it's a, an ease of getting results in. That's easy. Uh, the difficult part, of course, is that what that has bred is that um, the accountants own all uh, broadcasting now. So they look at a newsroom and say, why do you need so many people when you can get everything off the internet? I, and <laughs> they all know the, the, the stories of internet companies, that, you know, podcasts like yourself, which start very small and then become phenomenons, and they all hear about this and they say, well, hang on, that podcast is run by two guys. Why can't we run a newsroom like that? And, and when I worked at Sky News, they were moving towards that way. They had automated cameras. Um, when, when I was reading sport there, there was no autocue operator. You would operate the autocue yourself with a pedal. Oh, wow. So they were moving away from actual humans um, towards everything being being automated. And the way that newsrooms are run now and computers dominate the way that it runs, we, at Al Jazeera, for example, we cut all our or edit all our own um, uh, pieces that go to air. So that has taken away a lot of the editing. When I was at Sky News, they got rid of the entire graphics department and merged them with editing. So um, there's been a big pullback since I've started in, in media, which is oh, three decades ago now, um, in the way that news is reported. There's not so much uh, breaking stories because the internet will do that. Or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram will do that now. And, and citizen journalists are much quicker at getting things um, to, to air. And everybody knew when I started... Uh, in sport, there was always a footballer that had done something wrong, and it was kind of much nudge we went hushed up by the journos. Uh, these days, you couldn't do it because the, because the citizen journalists would stick it on Twitter, and the actual journalist would miss out on the, on the story. So he would have an editor or a boss breathing down his neck. So it's a competition not only between journalists and producers and newsrooms now, but it's against people who, who are out badgering football reports. And I'm not saying that. Footballers who do things wrong are not in the wrong, but I'm just I'm just imagining that, that stakes are much higher now, and that if you're a top line of football, you actually would, wouldn't even go out anymore because the public is out there with camp with phones everywhere you go, and, and if I could go back in time with uh, a, a tablet device or a mobile phone and go back to my first job in that newsroom and show people, they wouldn't believe it. Why would you use a telephone to take photos now? It's such uh, an instant, every one of us is instantly gratified in news. And with a 24-hour news cycle, it's absolutely ravenous. And I actually think journalists and producers and people in newsrooms work harder these days than they used to. Maybe in the old days they worked harder at finding the story, but now the stakes are much higher and the certainly the, the personnel at the ground level and in the trenches are a lot less than when I first started in the media. So that's probably the main thing I've noticed is the change in technology has led to people expecting much more of, of their news and their broadcasters um, and also the amount of money that's available right across the board. And, and I've, I've been privy to and I've negotiated a lot of deals, uh, particularly when I was at the ABC, and the amount of money that's expected by sporting organisations now is a lot more, and that means the stakes are much higher. <laughs> Um, it's an interesting point you raise about, uh, well, everyone's, you know, everyone with a phone is a journo these days. Um, do you find yeah. it, uh, how do you make your point of difference then as a, as a news producer? Do you, it, do you focus on quality or is there a pressure to get first with like a salacious story or anything like that? Got to be very careful um, these days and particularly on, on, on Twitter and, uh, yeah, case in point, uh, when Jonah Lomu, the famous um, New Zealand rugby union player, I was picking up a friend from the airport in Auckland and Jonah came through after the Rugby World Cup. was coming, he comes through customs and he was coming out with his baggage and I fired off a couple of photos of him and then stuck on Twitter. Um, I think I'd actually, what I actually wrote was, you know, Jonah Lomu because he had six, piece, six pieces of luggage. 
And I said, man, man loves to shop. <laughs> and I put it on Twitter, and then he died the next day. So I had the last photos of Jonah Lomu that I had, had tweeted. So I was part of the news cycle then. Um, and it, it was simply because I'd lucked it in that Jonah was coming through and, and, and people around the world were using my last shots of Jonah Lomu. Uh, most of them acknowledged me, and all they did is an at Craig Norenberg's, but a lot of them didn't. And they stuck it up and they would create Twitter as though Twitter had taken a photo, some autobots. <laughs> but it was but it was me. But I was involved in that news cycle and it was and it was it wasn't because I was a journalist or a producer, I just happened to be a person standing there. So that can happen that can happen to anyone. But it makes it harder when we work in a newsroom then because we're competing against people on Twitter or Facebook. And someone might tweet, Oh, Jonah Lombu's dead. But we until we get it confirmed, like for example when Muhammad Ali died and I was in the Al Jazeera newsroom, I was doing the night shift, and I was sitting with the presenter, and we were saying, well, he, how, is, is he alive? He's dead. We were getting early reports that he was dead, and they were just keeping him alive until his family said goodbye to him. And it was, how do you confirm that he's dead until you actually get the actual confirmation? Is it better to... It's like sitting down for a job, and you know, I had two answers to this one when they say, oh, what what is better, you know, just rushing the story out or checking all your sources. There's no correct answer. It depends on who the producer is. Mm-hmm. Some producers love people who might take the opportunity and have a you know, rush of blood and get the story out there and beat everyone if it's right. Um, but other producers, you know, and I count myself in this bracket, it's better to check the story um, and, and put the quality out there rather than just rushing to get it out there on Twitter or Facebook because you can you can very red-faced if, if you get it wrong. So I'm probably in the, in the other camp, which is, is the old-fashioned style, which is, which is to check it. But I think you're right. Um, you, you know, we're competing now with Twitter and Facebook, and, and you can get dragged into something that you read on Twitter, and I've read stuff and go, oh, that sounds a great story. But every now and then there's a personality that you read on Twitter is dead, and, and they turn out that they're very much alive. So you've just got to be really careful. Yeah, you certainly don't want to have your, your Richard Wilkins, Jeff Goldblum moment. That's the one, yeah. See, and that was because, that's because they rushed, they put it to air and they go, oh, we've got to be first with that. So you just got to be really careful. You mentioned earlier, Craig, about broadcast rights and the increasing dollars that are being asked for those. There was probably one big one in particular in recent times was the cricket, the Australian cricket tour to India in 2013, where the BCCI basically priced everyone out of the market. And in Australia, the ABC just went, no, we're not going to do it. The the BCCI assumed everyone would pay those exorbitant prices. So are we starting to see, I guess, a world where the media organisations are actually starting to, to take a little bit of control back and say, no, we're not going to pay those exorbitant prices? Or do you think that was more just a one-off? No, I was head of sport and did those negotiations. So it was actually, I was the guy who, who meant we didn't do the tour when I was at the ABC. And that was the first time in ages that we didn't do an Indian tour. Mm. And that came down to um, the BBC had done the Indian tour before and got charged not only the uh, for the rights, but they were charging the Indian um, cricket board were charging for the hire of the commentary um, booths today, the commentary um, offices where they sit in. Okay, which they which they never done before, and they charged exorbitant amount, and they were going to do the same to us. And on top of that, I think I had two or three people ring me to say that they were the person that I was supposed to negotiate with. And they were <laughs> operating on behalf of it, um, so something just. A little bit funny, and 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 when I first started, the ABC was when the Commonwealth Games in Delhi um, were on, and I'd spoken to the EP in charge of the Commonwealth Games, and she had said the difficulties that the ABC had that they'd lost so much money because there was a lot of you had to pay uh, the the Indian Commonwealth Games people up front, and they were supposed to refund your money that people didn't refund, Um, and I, I can remember. We had pre-booked hotels for Jim Maxwell to go to that Indian tour and then trying to get the money back for the Indian hotel operators was was virtually impossible because we put down a, down, a deposit and that they, they were refusing to pay it back to us. So there was lots of little things during that tour that made me think, you know what, there's too many 
Red Herrington. And, and given the BBC's experience that they had terrible problems and they had uh, had publicly said that was the last of the they would ever do if those rules were going to count. So the Indian Cricket Board had, had priced themselves out of the, out of the market then. And I, I, people rang me at my, in my office and abused me and how dare I do this and I've destroyed cricket. Yeah, did, did one of those, is me. one of those voices familiar? Because you might re- remember, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Craig. <laughs> yeah, you might have rung me up. And, and they used to have me over to a lot. And, and it, was, it was the same when I worked at Sky News. So, And we'd try and do one bulletin, we would try and lead with AFL, and then the next bulletin we would lead with NRL to try and be fair. But you couldn't win. People would ring me up and say, well, you know, you're obviously an AFL fan because, you know, you, you you're such a dominant AFL, you know, leaning towards Aussie rules, and then you'd get to the next bullet and an Aussie rules fan ringing up with exactly the same. And then I used to get the same with the ABC. When footy started to drive around, you'd go, oh, no, here we go. And then somebody would ring up. And then a rugby union fan would ring up or a soccer fan and say, well, why aren't both in my sport leading? And you'd have to have this this kind of philosophical argument with them. And in the end, you'd say, you know what, AFL and NRL are the two biggest football codes. And I'm sorry, but that's that's the way we do it. I remember this because someone ringing up and having a go at me because we weren't covering the second division Scottish League. How honestly. dare you? <laughs> I don't like second division Scottish. We're lucky to show there is such the Scottish a thing? Premier League anymore. <laughs> yeah, there is such a thing. So you can't win when you, especially when you're boss, you can't win. And that was certainly the case with cricket and and a lot of the things that happened at the ABC simply came down to money and the ABC has less and less money to spend on these things and I totally got that in the old days the ABC used to do every overseas tour but it basically comes down to dollars and cents and as protector of the taxpayers' money they should have been ringing me to well, you should have been ringing me to thank me for looking after the, the, you know, the little bit of money that we had to spend on sports rights but um, bit by bit and we had a big fracas in the end with the um, with Cricket Australia over their last right to do what they did with the cricket because they had stripped the ABC of all the digital rights to, to, for um, streaming cricket commentary on our app and, and online, and that became a great big battleground. And, and the, the ABC still hasn't got um, any streaming rights um, of the cricket. And so people want to know why we don't have that, and that simply came down to money. And speaking of the the money side of thing, the the AFL rights, the the most recent ones, was an obscene amount of money, and those rights are, are coming up again. And there's reports of a lot of new players wanting to to come into that marketplace. One of them is, I think, Gold FM, so traditional media, but the other is the new uh, internet based sports radio station Eon Sports, which if they were to to be awarded some of the rights for the AFL, that would change completely the landscape because all of a sudden it is that internet-based organisation who's doing it and there's only one way that you can get that and that is basically through your your, your device and the AFL, much like you were saying with Cricket Australia, they lock away the, the streaming um, rights and you yep. have to go onto the AFL app and you listen to it through there. So if Eon Sports come on board, that's going to really, really change how things are done. Yeah, that was another big battle and I think the ABC was with the AFL over that because they, the AFL did strip us and, and not just us, they, they also stripped all the other radio stations of their streaming rights. So they um, withheld those rights from the ABC and that that's part of the negotiation process. The ABC decided that footy was so valuable to them that they would risk the future. And, and I, but I felt it was a bad move because um, that is the future. And I think you're right, mobile devices, being able to, um, if they could ever adjust the, the slight delay to go to the footy with, it's like the old days where you'd take a transistor radio. If, um, you guys would remember this, but you'd take a transistor <laughs> radio to the footy and have a listen. It was just a, a little... I don't know if it was a little bit behind or in front of the action. Um, but if you could get an internet call and get the buffering and the streaming right on it, how good would that be to take it to the footy and actually have a listen to the call while you're watching watching the footy? And that's where I think the future of radio lies in you know content being available, uh, streaming online. And I think you're right. If they have enough money 
to, if someone paid the AFL enough money, they would block out the ABC, no doubt, ABC Radio. They would say, sorry, someone's paid for the exclusive rights to it. We're taking that off you and we'll give it to them. And I would say somewhere down the line, that is exactly what's going to happen. And I wonder if the MCG and Etihad Stadium investing quite heavily in their Wi-Fi networks mm. might be, I guess, presupposing some of that, uh, some of that stuff happening. Yeah. Alternatively, the AFL, and I know that and I had many tours and they're very professionally run, and, and I got on very well with the AFL people, but fantastically run business. They were building uh, media facilities um, at AFL House in Melbourne so that they would just bring everything in house. And I could probably see there would be, a, I would envisage a time if the AFL did their own radio broadcast and got the Wi Fi um, and, and the, the way to stream. At the stadiums, they could lock it up and own the streaming at the stadiums and put their own advertising on it. I was amazed at the London Olympics when I was there, trying to tweet or stick things on Facebook that the main Olympic stadium didn't have Wi-Fi for, and all journalists had this problem that it wasn't up to um, uh, wasn't up to what all journalists were trying to do break news, you know, very quickly. So I'll be interested to see what happens with Rio and and how the Olympics goes because. I mean, look, let's face it, this is the age of, um, of mobile devices and social media, um, and maybe the it's one of the few things that, well, actually, no, I take that back. It's one of the many things that the IOC is uh, behind the times on. And um, But I think the AFL probably, AFL and cricket, I think, were the two that led the way in terms of where they could see the media going, and, and good luck to them. They'll take, they'll strip the ABC of rights, own the rights themselves, and if you own the media, you've got all the power. You, you've made an interesting point there that we want to touch on, Craig, and it's about the AFL setting up its own media wing, so to speak. Um, mm. Rumours are that there's about 125 people employed there in their communications, yeah. wing, but not just the AFL. The teams themselves have specific... Uh, Beat writers, if you want to call it, and uh, you know official video uh, houses, and where they'll do their own interviews and break their own news. Mm. Um, the NRL's heading that way as well. Um, what do you make of those sort of as a as someone who needs to get those get those stories and get that footage? What do you make of those sort of uh, developments? They keep it in house, and and it's certainly not as much fun interviewing athletes these days because they're so media trained, and every now and then someone will go go rogue and, <laughs> and be their own man or their own woman and, and do it that way. But you can see it like Collingwood TV or, or, you know, I think every AFL team now has their own Twitter feed or Facebook feed or their own YouTube channel. Uh, and good luck to them. That's exactly what they should be doing. And then if, if there's a, a player who's got in trouble in some way, you'll see the first exclusive interview with this player will be done on... Collingwood TV on their YouTube their YouTube channel, and it's exactly the same with the NRL, and that is where it is going. It's a bit a bit like the NFL. They look after everything. They lock it up. Although I will say, um, I did a story when I was at SBS on the LA Dodgers. There was a, an Aussie called Luke Prokopek who was pitching for the LA Dodgers in, I think it was about 2001 that I'd gone to do this story. And I can remember going to training as an SBS you know, producer. I was supervising producer then. Going along, but I was a rugby league fan, going along to training and being abused by their, the team's PR person. So the next week I fly to LA to do a story on this Aussie picture with the LA Dodgers, one of the biggest sporting organisations in the world, and they bent over backwards for me. <laughs> there was nothing that they couldn't have done for me that I didn't want. I went down on the diamond. I, I was given access to any player I wanted, and these are guys who are on multi-million dollar contracts, any of their coaching team who were, who were a bunch of um, major league legends. When the game was on, they gave me a monitor, someone to sit with me, as much popcorn and, and Budweiser as I could drink. They looked after me, and they took amazing care of me. And the next week I was back doing rugby league stories again and, and being treated, treated very badly. So one thing I will say since then, so that's 10, 15 years ago, is that sporting organisations have improved out of sight, and a lot of that has to do because the clubs have really had to have to measure up. And then what you're talking about um, is that they've moved a lot of stuff in house. They've got, although I still think we have a way to go, um, between Australia and New Zealand at least, behind 
the United States or even even North North America. Um, having worked in England, they're still probably on par. Some of their football clubs, whilst they're very professional on the field, off the field, they're not. But the more that they can move things in-house, they can control the media. Number one, they will protect all their assets. But number two, they will have to, because if the more people that are going to their YouTube channels, the more people looking on Twitter, people know the difference between something that's good and something that's not. So I actually think it's a better thing for the media that more people get access to it because they'll vote with their feet. Yeah, the, the access issue is one that's come up a lot in, in AFL circles. Like even Especially recently, as it's been tied down even more and more. You've had like Adelaide player Josh Jenkins say, this is ridiculous, mm. Like the players should be able to speak to the media, and more importantly, the media should have access to the players and be more like it is in the, the NFL. Do you think that the Australian marketplace is mature enough to ever get to that point or will the the clubs themselves be quite reluctant to to give that much control, I guess, to, to a media organisation? Yeah, it's a funny one because, you know, famously we always talk during Super Bowl week how every uh, player in the week, in the lead-up to Super Bowl, has to do interviews and they're available for a whole day. Anyone can come and do interviews with them. And they're all put on little corner posts to all parts of the uh, of the stadium, so that they do interviews with with the media. And I saw this you know, when I did the Dodgers. Every oh, I had access to everyone. Try and get a player or a coach a couple of days before the AFL Grand Final or the NRL Grand Final, and the NRL have a have a blackout. There, there is a point that you go, well, that's it. You don't have access to coaches or players anymore, which I don't understand. Oh, if, that's if it's bizarre. competitive. It's a competitive marketplace. They're trying to, to... It's AFL versus NRL, which is basically, as, as marketing people always say, it always comes down to two, Coke and Pepsi or Kentucky Fried and, and, and McDonald's. It's AFL versus NRL in, in winter, particularly, and, and A-League and uh, Super Rugby to pick up, pick up the scraps. The big two should be sharper at the way that they're being portrayed in the lead-up to games, in access to players. And I think the players are right in that they... They should be talking to the media, but I do agree that there, there has to be a, a, an, um, a gatekeeper. In the old days, some crusty editor of a newspaper would just ring the player or ring the coach, and if you got them at the wrong time, you'd get a, a really juicy quote, and that could destroy a player if, because they weren't media trained. But then there's the other side that if they're too media trained, then it becomes kind of bland footy quote. So somewhere in between, um, I don't think you should have access to players carte blanche, um, but sometimes the media person who works for football clubs, and we've all run into this, we work in the media, start to believe that they're one of the players and they're a superstar like the players, and they become you know, very difficult to work with. So um, I think someone could revolutionise the way that uh, the football clubs PR are run if you had somebody who just ran, and I can remember the ABC, not once did I have a football club in, in either NRL or AFL ever ring me and say, are you happy with the way that our club is being, um, you know, <laughs> taking care of the ABC? Not once. In, you know, I was there for four years. Mm. In fact, I would say that any media organisation I've ever worked in my career, anyone has ever rung me and said, are you happy with the way that, um, that we're giving you access to our players or the way that, that we're doing it? And, um, and I think until that happens, the people actually think oh, why don't we work hand-in-hand with the media rather than fighting them? But we will be behind the United States in the way things are covered. In fact, the the really good organisation that I like, particularly ABC, was Netball because they at least did ring me and say, were you happy with everything that we did for you this season? So that's that's hats off to them. Uh, Cricket Australia were excellent. They'd take us for lunch and they would ask those questions. But the AFL and the NRL, not one club in in my entire career, has ever rung me to ask if I was happy. And I wonder if that's an opportunity for the the leagues, the the, the other sporting leagues. The so yeah. Um your Super Rugby, your A-League, your netball, your basketball, for them to really get a, a foothold in the, the media environment to actually say, yep, you know what, we will work a lot more closely with you because then that will obviously have the flow-on effect of having greater media coverage. So yep. I wonder if there yep. is a, a thought that those, you know, the, the non-AFL and NRL in the Australian context would, would start to, to build those relationships. It wasn't at the old in the 70s when Hertz 
were number two in the rental car business. Their logo was, you know, Hertz, we try harder. And it was actually very, you know, very successful because that people caught up on that and they try harder than the number one because the number one doesn't have to try very hard and was resting on its laurels. And, and you're right, uh-huh. if the A-League tried harder, if Super Rugby or, or Rugby Union in general, which is kind of on the nose a bit in, in Australia, and have, will definitely have to try harder. Um, or if in, in, in summer, because the A-League, the A-League versus cricket really in summer, if the A-League tried harder, then maybe they could make a run at cricket. Who knows? So, yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, they, should, they should all take the hurt view and try harder. <laughs> yeah, the A-League in particular, because the Big Bash is starting to uh, mop the floor with them ratings-wise yeah. and coverage-wise. So I'd hope, you'd hope yeah, they, weren't, they weren't, the A-League thought they were number one and just taking it easy a bit. Yeah, I was surprised with that one. And, and, um, and I'd have to, you know, take, tip, tip my lid to the head of sport at Channel 10, who I know very well, who's a fantastic bloke. And he took a punt on Channel 10, and uh, and they did really well with that. So, but that that was a bit of a phenomenon. Like, who would have thought that? And and as and I'm because I'm rapidly heading towards fifty, and I'm more of a Test cricket fan, and and grew up on on a, di- a healthy diet of the fifty over one day game. Twenty twenty to me is I'm, I'm actually not that interested in it. I can remember having chats with Jim Maxwell the ABC about this. He wasn't a huge fan. He liked it, but he wasn't. He liked all cricket, but he, he was more a fan like me of Test cricket. One day, well, my son, who's 11 years old, he loves 2020 cricket. So what am I to know? They're, they're very smart. Cricket Australia, they're thinking about the future, and 2020 is is the way to go. I just wonder where 50 over cricket will fit somewhere in the future when, old, when I'm an old fogey and, and, and where it will fit. But Channel 10 have, have now made that their summer sport, so sometimes it works, and they could have gone, oh, you know, let's, let's pick... Another thing, you know, let's pick netball, and maybe netball wouldn't have worked. It just it just happens that they picked twenty twenty big bash, and it worked really well. So congratulations to them. <laughs> um, now we're getting towards the end here, so we just want to ask. We've only got a couple more questions, and I wanted to ask. You've worked with some legends in sports broadcasting uh, in Australia. Um, you've mentioned yeah. a few through here. You've worked with Debbie Spillane, um, a whole bunch of other. Um, folks who trailblazers, if you want to call it. Um, yes. What are the and you've worked, you know, you've multi-continental. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what are some of the main lessons that have stayed with you when you started all those years ago till now? Number one is that, and it, if, if I went back in time, and I often say this to my wife, and I look at my CV, and I've got a great CV, and I, I still don't know how I did it. And it's not like I planned it. I just bounced from place to place. But I, I kept my nose clean and I, and I was generally nice to everyone and I had strong values. So number one was to work hard um, and to not have attitude. And when I started in the media, boy, if I ever spoke back to, which I never did, but I saw people speak back to the EP or the, the news director, they'd be sacked in an instant. But I've been boss of lots of people who spoken back to me or being disrespectful and, um, and you know, those people get away with it for a day, but long-term you'll get found out. And I've been really lucky, as you mentioned, that I've worked with some giants of the industry. And I can remember when I started in Canberra, I was working with people that I'd grown up watching on television. They weren't, they weren't big at a national level, but they, to me, they were superstars. And then when I went from Capital Television, Canberra, I can remember, actually, I can remember my interview for Channel 9 back then. The news director... Paul Fenn rang me and the whole interview went like this. Um, do you like footy? Yep. Good. Start Monday. That was the entire interview <laughs> for to get a job at Channel 9. And so then the next so then that Monday I drove my Kingswood down the highway from Canberra to Sydney and I was sitting sitting opposite Ian Ross, the late great Ian Ross, who used to read on the Today Show. Um, I go at the back and Steve Liebman would be used to be, be the presenter on the Today Show be having a cigarette lovely bloke um, a Canberra Raiders supporter like myself um, Liz Hayes was presenting back then Jim Whaley who um, used to present the Sunday program and um, I used to write news breaks for Brian Henderson who was the number one news reader um, uh, back then and then I actually became very very good friends with Jim Whaley when he shifted to Sky News when I was there so I've been very lucky, but it's funny you mentioned Debbie Spillane. If I could mention one person who's probably had the greatest influence on me, it's probably Debbie Spillane. I remember watching Debbie Spillane when I was, was 
coming through, and I used to think to myself, I want to be like Debbie Spillane. She she encapsulated uh, everything I wanted to be. She was brave. She was good at what she did. Um, she was funny when she had to be, but I I could tell that she would be, particularly back then as a woman, she would be doing it tough. So she was a great role model for anyone, and I was lucky enough to be a boss when I was at the ABC, so it came full circle. I can remember when the Barcelona Olympics were on, um, I'd been invited. I was doing weekends at a um, community station that did horse racing in Canberra and somehow got invited to the AIS as all these famous journos were there being shown around the AIS, including Debbie. And I stalked Debbie and watched what she did and used to say, wow, if I could be like Debbie Spillane. And I got to work with her. And, and it turns out Debbie was, was a lovely woman but also a true professional. So I, I'm glad that you mentioned Debbie Spillane. And when I read about all, all the women that are now breaking through in the media, I get cranky sometimes when their PR departments or their marketing departments say, oh, isn't this great? We're breaking the glass ceiling. And I say, you should pay tribute to Debbie Spillane because she was there first. She did all the hard yards that made it easier for women um, to work in the media. And isn't it, isn't it strange to think that in days gone by that there weren't that many women in the media? But, yeah, I've been really lucky with the people I've worked with, including Debbie Spillane. And one of, I guess, my, my earliest memories of listening to, to ABC is, is both Debbie Spillane and Karen Tai being the um, the Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon grandstand host, like in the host studio and basically running the whole show themselves. Yes, yes. And, and I worked with Karen Tai, who's now based in Perth, and I worked with her at the ABC. And how remarkable it was that I got to work with all these people, you know, um, you know uh, you know, Jim, when he was doing cricket, I used to think, gee, that's amazing. It's Jim. I used to, you know, fall asleep at night when the ashes were on in England with my transistor radio under the pillow, listening to Jim, and, and I became good friends with Jim, and I, I was his boss. But, um, you know, he was, he was one of the world's great sporting commentators. I got to work with him. And um, and when I worked in, in England, um, you know, I, uh, I sat at a desk opposite George Best when he was alive. Um, never got his autograph, which was silly of me. I had to buy one eventually, but I should have asked him. Um, and got to work with Martin Tyler when I was at SBS and Johnny Warren and and, um, and the great Liz Murray when I was at SBS, who's another one, another um, someone I, I look up to and another person who was a trailblazer. So I've been very lucky with the people that I've worked with. And, and I have to pinch myself occasionally to say, you know, I'm a kid from, it was born in Queenie and raised in Canberra. How the hell could I be sitting with all these people and and I've been very lucky. So hopefully, if there's a young kid listening to this who one day wants to work in the industry, as long as they work hard, then, then they can travel the world and, and make a career out of something that's hard work but really rewarding. Well, yeah, we've um, been keeping our eye on a little fella who's doing uh, his own uh, budding multimedia career. who goes by the name of Tommy Norenberg. Yeah, Tommy does his... He does, but Tommy's a child of the tablet age, so he was born into... He can use, um, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty good on, on an iPad, but he's amazing. And so he does his own little, little podcasts. He does his, you know, they're maybe two minutes long. And, um, but he's into it and he's much better at doing it than I am. And, and occasionally he says to my wife, maybe I could be a journalist like Dada. And I laugh and say, don't do it, son, don't. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of hard work and it's got a joke too. I'd say, you know, go and try and dance with the Bolshoi Ballet rather than become a journalist. But, yeah, if Tommy wants to do it. I wish him all the best. I, I worked with, um, the, you know, lots of like, children of uh, when I worked at Channel Nine. Um, I worked with Simone Sutcliffe, who was uh, Ken Sutcliffe's you know daughter, and, and we became actually I was best man at her at her wedding, and we became great friends. So there's lots of people I've worked with who are the the daughters or the, or the sons of famous people, and, and they forge their own careers. And I hope Tommy does one day. <laughs> All right, well, we might leave it there. Craig Norenberg, we are eternally grateful for you agreeing and having a chat to us on a sporting discussion. Uh, we want to say thanks a lot and uh, all the best with Al Jazeera, and we'll see you later. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. See you later. Oh, God. <laughs> 
You really were like a nervous kitten <laughs> just being brought home for the first time, not really sure what to oh, say. Oh, man. Oh, dear. Anyway, AJ, I, I really enjoyed You couldn't tell, but I really enjoyed that. Let's, let's wrap this one up. <laughs> let's wrap it up. That is it for episode 23 of a sporting discussion. Uh, a reminder that if you have an issue you'd like us to talk about, hit us up on Twitter at ASD underscore podcast or facebook.com slash a sporting discussion. We reply, don't worry. Tweets or comments are signed off with either AJ for myself or AD for himself. Tell your friends to subscribe to a sporting discussion. We are on iTunes. We're on Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean. We're also on player.fm. Uh, and more, most importantly, we are on Wooshka.com or the Wooshka app. Download and listen to us on the Wooshka app. Wooshka are the wonderful Australian company who hosts all of our audio. Uh, Andrew will be Dono the Sports Guy, Monday, 7.15am on 3RRR 102.7 FM. Any plans for this week, Andrew? Olympics. Olympics. Am I allowed to say that word? Oh, major sporting event in South American country, I think you meant to say. Sorry, Clause 40 has yeah. been invoked. <laughs> and Andrew will also be calling the Australia v Sri Lanka third test for White Line Wireless. Look them up on your search engine. Yeah, you can... Maybe, yeah, maybe. Maybe with some added cursing. Yeah, so we'll be on TuneIn and also on Mixler. AJ, you can check out his stuff on RugbyLeagueHub.com. His first article was published last week. There'll be another things to look forward to this weekend coming up in yep. a couple of days' time. Should be published uh, Thursday before round 23. Uh, and don't know if I'm live blogging on the raw.com.au yet this weekend. But that is enough. Thanks for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week.